As climate change-related weather events become more common, causing heavy rainfall and in some instances desertification, the need for smart water solutions is on the rise. This smart technology is critical to effective water management and preventing wastage of this precious resource. To explore the market drivers behind smart water solutions and the technology making the biggest impact, my colleague Yusuf Latif is joined by two experts from Guidehouse Insights, Eric Woods, Associate Director, Smart Cities and Urban Innovation, and Research Analyst, Grant Sams. I am Pamela Larg, and you are listening to the Energy Transitions Podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. So as we all know, Guidehouse Insights recently released a report covering the increasing demand for smart water solutions and how it's driven by climate change events like heavy rainfall and on the opposite end, aridification. Now, to me, this is quite interesting because it shows an interesting relationship between demand and actual events happening in real time. These issues have been prevalent for the longest times, but the fact that they're now really driving this demand, I find to be fascinating. So I'd like to invite you both to just introduce yourselves, starting with Grant. Sure. My name is Grant Sams. I'm a research analyst with Guidehouse Insights working in the smart cities area. My expertise in particular is on socioeconomic factors and intersectionality behind the climate crisis. So all of the strands of economic, environmental, and social issues that both contribute to and can help you know, mitigate that crisis into the future. That little intersection is where I play around on a daily basis. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's so great to have you. And Eric, I know that you're more involved in, you have more of an expertise within Smart Cities. Yes, uh, I'm Research Director for Smart Cities at Gathouse, and I've been leading our Smart Cities research for about a decade or more. And my background is in government IT and digitalization analysis. But within Guidehouse, we add to that coverage around energy, water, buildings and transportation and the overall modernization of city infrastructure in smart and sustainable cities. And I'm based in the UK. Excellent. I think it's so great to have both of you here because you can provide very interesting perspectives on the topic. I know, like we said, Grant, you have a background in climate and energy research analysis. And I just want to ask you, what do you think that these findings about increased demand for these solutions, what does this signal for the market and for its stakeholders as we proceed with the energy transition? Well, I think it signals that cities are facing new challenges. And with that, they're going to have to face those challenges with new solutions. You know, historically, cities used to, and water authorities, used to only estimate usage in a lot of places. They would just, based on, you know, the square footage of a unit or a building, estimate how much usage there was going to be and then build based on that estimate. But when you do that, you don't get a feel for how much you might lose through leakage or how much you might lose potentially through theft. And one of the things about climate change that we say is that a technical term is that it's a non-stationary crisis, meaning that the past is not and cannot be a model of what's to come. And because of that, both stakeholders in the marketplace in general have to be more nimble and more willing to take risks when it comes to ensuring water supplies or 
you know, abating flooding risk. This is something that cities and, and water utilities, in both of those cases, they've been historically pretty conservative organizations, not necessarily so willing or ready to make big changes or invest in new and cutting edge technologies. But the issue that you run into now, especially with things like procurement practices for cities, is that they have these patterns that they move very slow and very cautiously, which would work if the past were a model for the future, but we know that it's not. And so we know we have a suite of technologies like smart metering, like sewer overflow detection, like flood detection and prediction engines, smart valves that can help to you know, prepare cities for large amounts of incoming water. And these sorts of technologies, both cities and market vendors are going to have to change their practices to try to meet in the middle somewhere. And in all honesty, take some risks on some new ideas. But that's the future that we're heading into is a future where we've got to develop new practices and new standards because what we've relied on in the past is not going to work. Thank you. And I love that image that you've kind of drawn there about how these things are non-stationary, they're dynamic, they're changing, and people have to really be on, their, be on their toes and change as the environment around them does and try to really get ahead of the curve. Eric, I want to ask you about this and what this indicates for you about the trajectory of smart cities going forward. These solutions, they're going to be critical for smart cities makeup, and I want your opinion on how that's going to look, how cities need to adapt going forward. Yes, well, it's, you know, I don't think it's any surprise to say that cities are right at the centre of the water-related issues that we're talking about. Increased urbanisation puts pressure on water supplies and also on wastewater systems. And it's not just happening in developing, rapidly urbanising countries. You can see the same issues at the fore in the expanding city regions in the US and in Europe as well. So it's definitely coming much more of a focus for you know politicians and leaders in cities and also as well as issues around water sources and water management the cities are increasingly at risk from climate events and from flooding in particular and in fact if you look at the top 20 cities identified by the ipcc for population and asset risk from rising water levels and coastal flooding these include mumbai shanghai miami new york tokyo and bangkok so, you know, we are really having to deal with these issues in some of our most populous urban conurbations and world cities. So improving water management has become a key element in the development of smart and sustainable cities. Um, it's become one of the pillars of those strategies for many cities. And what we're seeing is cities encouraging the adoption of smart meters, you know, working with their water utilities to find better ways to manage the resources and also looking at the use of flood monitoring technologies to improve the resilience of the city. And these are also tying in with broader technology investments happening in cities and, and cities increasing familiarity with advanced technologies, data analytics, sensors and so on. So they're looking at water as one of the areas that they can apply to these technologies to increase their resilience. In terms of the makeup of a smart city, Eric, I want to ask you this again, just because you clearly have such detailed knowledge about these cities which are at the top. Where do you think priorities lie in terms of smart water solutions for them? Well, as always, each city has a unique set of conditions, you know, historical 
political, geographical, and therefore, you know, there's no one size fits all. So what we're seeing is each city looking at this in terms of where its major risks lie and also what resources it can bring to the table and also what its relationship is with uh, regional or national government, because obviously the levels of agency a city have or a water utility varies considerably, even sometimes within countries and certainly within regions. So it's a question of each city understanding what the critical issues it faces, you know, is that more around future water shortages or is it more about the risks they face from flooding or in some cases both. I think the important thing is bringing this into a strategic view of what they want to do as they develop a sustainable city. One of the, things, the key developments we're seeing is an increasing maturity is in their ability to link different aspects of their smart city program. And this is really important. You know, there's incredible interdependency, for example, between flood risk and the energy networks, right? I mean, it's the flooding of substations that leads to the loss of power often after you have a major storm event. So you have to look at resiliency in terms of the interconnection of water and power, for example, and also looking into how it works in terms of the different vulnerabilities of different communities. And this has become an increasingly important issue many cities that they're you know directing investment in terms of the vulnerability of communities not in terms of say their political or economic weight that they bring within the city so yeah each city needs to look at this through its own discrete lens but there's some the solutions obviously have a commonality it's how they're applied within a particular city eric you kind of brought up how it's a case-by-case basis and what i find to be really interesting is the fact that hardcore climate change events like flash floods across Europe, across parts of Asia, Hurricane Ian, the wildfires across the United States have really kind of brought these matters into question and showing that they really need to be addressed and readdressed. Grant, in your opinion, what have events like Hurricane Ian, like the wildfires, really shown us about the state of smart cities, of smart water solutions, and where they are in these different cases? Well, what I think these events show is that planning and proactive adoption really can play a critical role in making sure that cities and the residents within are prepared for these kinds of storms. I think one of the things that happened, especially in the case of Hurricane Ian, is I remember after that event, there were a number of people that talked about how, you know, they didn't think something like this could happen or would happen. They didn't think that, you know, they would be the ones to get hit with one of these hurricanes that rapidly intensifies as it comes in to land. But over the past five-ish years, we've seen a history of hurricanes that come up into the Gulf of Mexico doing just that, you know, rapidly jumping up from a category one, category two to be a category three, four, I think five in one case. So there are cities within wildfire areas or within flooding areas that have made preparation, usually because they got hit by some kind of, you know, natural disaster that had a catastrophic impact, but then later take those lessons to heart and become more proactive, realizing that, you know, this wasn't just a one-off sort of event. The odds that this happens again are good. And so when they go to rebuild, they don't just necessarily rebuild as it was, they rebuild with those vulnerabilities in mind to make sure that they won't get caught out this way again in the future. So I think going back again to what I said earlier about non-stationarity, 
When you think about things as stationary, there is a risk that you consider these events to be freak accidents. You know, like the once in a thousand year event or whatever it is. And you think, oh, well, we had it once. It can't possibly happen again. And then two years later, it happens again. So I think that's both for water and for a number of other infrastructure challenges. That's the lesson to take to heart is just making sure that we realize that this is the signal of a new normal and that we adjust and respond accordingly. And I think just one thing to add to that, of course, cities like all the society have had to deal with an out of the blue global event in the last couple of years with the pandemic. And one thing that I think a lesson that has taught cities is what sort of services, what sort of infrastructure, what sort of capabilities they need to have to respond to that type of event. And so I think a lot of the lessons learned through that, uh, particularly in terms of the adaptability of their IT systems and IT infrastructure and the ability to get services out to all communities is equally relevant to how they respond to future climate events. Yeah, that is a really good point. I heard, uh, I forget who said it, and I'm going to apologize to that person preemptively, but somebody referred to, to COVID as being a dress rehearsal for climate change. And what they meant was that you have these challenges that just seemingly pop up out of nowhere, and then it's up to you to figure out how to respond. And yeah, I don't mean to talk about cities as if there's some sort of, you know, long lost cause that are, are so far behind. I mean, they are on the vanguard of responding to these challenges because it's where people live. And there are a lot of cities that have taken really, really good lessons to heart from COVID and have learned to be very, very flexible. And that will serve them well going into our climate future. No, I think that's a very valid point to make, especially about them being on the vanguard. You know, if these kinds of things aren't being proactively managed by cities, then the consequences can be quite dire. And that kind of brings me to the next point, which is just the fact that I'm very much interested in these types of technologies that are really being adopted and how they really help with cities to proactively manage these events. Things like leak detection, like pressure management. Grant, you mentioned some earlier as well. Eric, I wanted to ask you, when it comes to these types of technologies, what do you see as being the most crucial tech within this realm that will be essential for to really enable cities to withstand climate change events? I think it can help them withstand climate change events. I mean, I think there'll be a lot of elements to making cities more resilient. But I think Grant sort of touched on it there as well about the smart metering capabilities. That's been the bedrock of smart water solutions you know, so far, because obviously it brings control over resources. It opens up the opportunities for better leak detection. It just lays that sort of instrumentation infrastructure down that allows greater control. And so... Initially, a lot of smart meter deployments were more about cost reduction and better billing and so forth. And they obviously have a great role to play there and that produces a lot of their ROI. But now we're seeing that uh, embedded in wider water management programs. Just saw an announcement or was reading an announcement of a county in the UK, this went with ITRON, to build out from its smart meters into a broader leak detection program as part of the water management for that region. You mentioned pressure detection again. Leaks can be responsible for loss of around 40% of water on average, you know, varies around the world, but yeah, it's a very considerable source of water loss. So adding leak detection into the network can really help improve water retention and the overall management of that as a resource. And that's fairly mature technology. Now, certainly on the smart metering side, it's more about how we use the data better, how we expand the capabilities out. So it's more about just getting that rollout and we're seeing that gaining momentum in many countries. The other part of the picture is more of the emerging technologies as 
water utilities and cities get more familiar with IoT technologies, uh, using lower cost monitoring technologies for flood detection. So there you have the challenge of, you know, you don't know how often these events are going to go. So how much do you invest to protect against an event like that? And obviously, as the price comes down and as the familiarity with technology increases, cities feel more comfortable about rolling out these broader monitoring capabilities. And they're also part of that broader digitalization of the city's infrastructure and the increasing use of data analytics in the city. So it's not seen as a one-off risky project, but rather more as a broader improvement in the city's understanding of the status of its resources and infrastructure. And so I think we'll see a lot more use of those type of sensor technologies and the use of data analytics and even increasing use of AI to help cities understand risk and also to manage their resources. Yeah, Eric hit it on the head, but I, I just want to, he started to talk about it at the end, but I want to just reemphasize the software solutions that are coming in based on the data collected, because once you put these smart meters on every unit, and then if you put a few meters like pressure detection or leak detection meters along your mains at various points, places like fire hydrants, interestingly, can actually be really, really good spots. You start to collect a, a pretty incredible data lake about water usage and non-revenue water, where your leaks are, how much is leaving the system intentionally, unintentionally. And once you have that digitized and combined with other historic data on what kinds of pipes were installed, where they were installed, how old they are, the materials, you can actually get a really, really, really good view of the health of your system. And I was talking to a, a smart meter developer the other day who they have AI and software systems, analytic systems in place that can estimate when a leak has occurred beyond the meter at a user's home or can estimate which water main pipes are the most likely to burst so that utilities can prioritize their replacements. You know, you can do a lot of really, really cool things with software and those software solutions have just been developing leaps and bounds in the past few years. And as soon as that data is there, if you're using like, you know, advanced metering infrastructure, like AMI meters that can report and do two-way communication, report their own statuses, it is incredible how we're talking about being proactive, how proactive you can be in managing what is a very critical resource. Thank you so much for adding that really interesting piece of insight. And you mentioned some really interesting examples there. And I want to talk about some of the case studies. I know that the Guidehouse report that was released talked about a few different ways in which these solutions are implemented. Places like water efficiency solutions in the Turks, Caicos Islands, Galway Bay and Ireland. What has really stood out for the both of you? If we can start with Eric. Well, actually, I'm going to let Grant talk about a few of those in the report because he did study them. But there's two that I like. One's been around for a while. It's Buenos Aires. That's been doing flood monitoring for a number of years. And I think what's important for Venice Series as an example is that it's integrated into the city management system. So this isn't a separate IoT pilot, but actually something that is now being managed through its SAP backend system and so forth. It's an example, I think, of where we're going in terms of cities integrating IoT data into the core management systems. And in this case, it's the critical issue around flood detection. And then a more recent project, Cary in North Carolina, 
is doing flood detection with you know, Semtech and SAS, which is a mixture of laying out a load of sensors to improve the city's visibility and then applying data analytics to improve its readiness. And also, this is starting with flood detection, but is part of a larger planned IoT rollout. So that goes back to that point I was making of this being part of a broader landscape of the instrumentation of the city. And I know Grant will talk of the other examples that were in the report. Yeah, and goodness, there's a lot of examples in the report. One of the ones that I think is the most interesting, just to me personally, is the Smart Canal project in Glasgow. They implemented a project that was a series of IoT-controlled valves and shunts that was also then paired to a predictive analytics system looking at weather data and other historic trends to predict when risk of flooding was the greatest. And if the risk of flooding was high, what they would do is use those valves to slightly drain the canal, get water out of the canal, shunt it off into other areas preemptively so that when the storm came through, all that rainwater that fell, it had a place to go. They could funnel it now into the space they had created in the canal and it increased the sponginess of the city, how much water can the city absorb. And this concept of being a sponge city is something that's starting to gain traction, especially when it comes to flood, really flood abatement. Designing cities in a way that when water rushes in, and we've designed you know, cities with so much impermeable surface, that when it rushes in, it has a place to go. And not only does that potentially prevent or limit flooding damage to property, but it also prevents significant environmental damage and environmental pollution destruction because you don't have as much surface runoff that's then going straight into natural waterways. Something sort of along those same lines, I don't think we talked about it in the report, but Ellicott City, Maryland, is I alluded to this earlier, but they faced a once in a thousand year flooding event in uh, 2016. And I think they had thought, you know, oh, well, it's once in a thousand years. That can't possibly ever happen again. And then two years later, they faced another once in a thousand year event. And after that, I think the attention was really had by both the city and the county. And they started looking at how can we address this problem into the future? So they partnered with a number of different companies on a number of different solutions. They did sort of their own version of the Smart Canal project. They had a couple of um, like retention and holding ponds that they can adjust the levels of in preparation for these kinds of rain events to try to give the rain a place to go to funnel it somewhere less destructive than, you know, literally a raging river down Main Street. But they also implemented flood early warning systems, flood detection systems. They have a system called FloodBot which monitors both uh, weather forecasts and also rising conditions of upstream waterways and gives out an early warning via text and also via just public announcement system when a flood event is imminent and tells people to you know get out get out of these areas they're in danger you need to move it's you know similar to like a tornado siren or other sort of storm warning system but it's new to the area and i think pretty indicative of the types of alert systems that we're going to see, especially because the technology involved isn't necessarily that complicated, that complex. And also everyone now has a cell phone, so you can send an alert text or alert call or tone to everybody in the area and warn them of, you know, an impending flash flood risk in a way that we couldn't have done five, 10 years before. 
that wow uh, some very very cool insights there and i love the image of cities as a sponge in the face of these kinds of events and really really hunkering down it was also alluded to this kind of venn diagram between cities between the climate the economic and the social aspects of what the effects of climate change are and grant i just want to go back to you on this matter where do you see this tech and this demand for this tech kind of intersecting within this type of venn diagram Perhaps, uh, Yusuf, if you don't mind, I'll take that one because it ties in with some work we've been doing recently about where the future of cities in relation to those big questions fit. And I think that's a good way of answering that question because I think we're seeing four key dynamics around the reinvention of smart cities, particularly post-pandemic. And water, I think you can see where water fits into those and how it becomes an element. So the first one is cities are rethinking how they do city design, urban planning, you know, how their resources integrate, how their services are connected, notions of 15-minute cities and so forth, but also circular cities and also the use of green infrastructure, which Grant was alluding to as well. And clearly water resources are a key part of that, particularly around secularity and the resilience of communities than the, you know, the green infrastructure elements. So that part of it is, I think, very clear. Secondly, the digitalization of cities. I alluded to it before, we're reaching something for critical mass now in terms of cities' familiarity with advanced data analytics, IoT technologies, and so forth. And those capabilities, as we've been touching on through this talk, are very relevant to addressing some of the water challenges. So increasingly, this is becoming an area for the implementation of those technologies. The third is around climate change itself and sustainability. And there, I think the focus is around cities investing in critical infrastructure and increasingly in smart infrastructure. This is really important. You know, when cities make investments in infrastructure, then the approaches and the carbon embedded in those systems you know, then lasts and shapes the city often for you know, up to 100 years. Also, many parts of that infrastructure have you know, been underinvested in the past. We're now seeing a shift in that. You, know, you can see that in the IRA investments coming forward in the US and need to modernize infrastructure, make it adaptable, make it resilient and use smart technologies. And you know, water is very much being seen as a, a priority area in those sort of programs. And you know, really, it is about taking a longer view and the use of smart technologies, digital technologies in the modernization of that water network and the intersection of that water work with the other solutions. So we move away from more siloed approaches to a more flexible platform-based approach to cities' management of its infrastructure. And fourthly, we're seeing new approaches to finance and to new business models. Yes, it's important that the central government investment is coming forward, particularly post-COVID, and some of that has been channeled into infrastructure like water. But also we're looking at how cities can use their assets to underpin investment in modernization. Uh, we're seeing investment funds being set up that are taking a longer view in terms of the need to support sustainable programs. And then obviously we're seeing some of the international organizations also working, particularly in development countries, to try and help them understand what type of water infrastructure they will need for the future. So these four areas, digitalization, infrastructure, planning and finance are all relevant to the questions we're asking about how do we prepare our water systems for what lies ahead. And then there's a fifth dimension which relates to the social aspect. What we've seen post-pandemic and is an increasing focus on the notions of equity and inclusiveness in smart and sustainable cities. That was shown up in terms of recognition of the impact of the digital divide, for example, during COVID. But we're also seeing it in terms of 
climate adaptation and focus on ensuring resilience is something that is provided to all communities. Poorer communities are protected, you know, often they're in the most flood risky uh, areas of a city. So how do we ensure that they are giving the, the protection and the support they need? You know, what does an equitable approach to climate adaptation look like? And water is one of the fundamental sustainable development goals, you know, the provision of clean water and adequate wastewater management. And so ensuring those capabilities are actually fundamental to development of smart and sustainable cities. So, yeah, the interconnections that you just are really, really interesting to hear about and just the fact that everything at the end of the day is connected and hearing how closely connected smart water and these solutions are to making sure that no one gets left behind and ensuring that the energy transition is a just one. Thank you. Good, great stuff. Grant, do you have anything else to add on that matter? I would just say, I mean, I think Eric covered it really, really well. If I were to say anything and add anything on, it would be just that None of these aspects of this Venn diagram that we talked about are in isolation, right? They all connect back to each other. They all suffer the impacts of one another, and they all feed back into each other. So when you think about an event like Hurricane Harvey that flooded the Houston and Galveston area in Texas back in, oh, I believe this was 2017 or 18. There was a lot of, you know, disastrous flooding that happened. It set a rainfall event for a total amount of rain that fell, I, I believe, in North America during that storm. And there was a lot of flooding that was focused on during the immediate event. But then one of the interesting things of the aftermath for me was so much rain fell that was then washed out into Galveston Bay that 95% of the oyster beds in the bay, the, the oysters in those beds ended up dying. And it significantly restricted the amount of oysters that were available for harvest. And oyster harvest is a massive source of income for aquaculturists and watermen in that region. And those, you know, aquamen and, and aquaculturists are typically poorer. They're typically from historically marginalized communities. And the oyster harvest had to basically be cut off for, I believe, a year or two to allow those populations to recover, which meant that the amount of income that was already historically depressed within those communities was then further depressed by an event that was supercharged by climate change. So there's this knock-on economic effect, shockwave, that you can trace from the storm that then lasted years and years, probably is still going on today if you you know looked at it hard enough. And so... Going back and talking about the, you know, the willingness to experiment and to try technologies and to implement solutions like sponge city concepts, like early warning systems, other sorts of protections of, of environmental quality and systems. I think that's a case study I, I always keep in the back of my mind is particularly interesting and a particular, you know, indicator of the world that we're going into and the need to develop and adopt tools to help cope with that as our social, economic, environmental future. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, very, very interesting case study to hear more about and just how everything is interconnected and how impact on one thing can inevitably and will lead to impacts on these other areas. And I want to keep the focus on the states. I know Grant, you're in the States, Eric, in the UK. And I just want to ask each of you, uh, how does the integration of smart water technologies compare between utilities and cities in the States versus in Europe? If we can start with Eric. 
Yeah, well, perhaps if I could give a general view and then Grant can jump in. I mean, I think we've been looking at this, you know, the evolution of the smallholder system for many years. And in that time, the US has generally been the leader, partly because of the work the utilities did on initial meter rollout, but also I think because, you know, American uh, communities have, you know, been at the fore in some of the most extreme weather events, whether that's droughts in California or the storms we've been talking about through this podcast. So there's a strong incentive for the US to invest in this area. And we're seeing now more central funds coming forward because there's historically been an underfunding of the American water infrastructure that's well documented by a number of reports. So obviously it's good that that's been recognized now in the funding that's coming from central government. But also there's the issue of fragmentation. There's around, I think, 50,000 water companies across the US, lots of medium and small size entities running the water. So it's it's a much more difficult process of getting a coherent strategy around that. And obviously you've got much smaller entities with lesser capabilities implementing these systems. But certainly uh, you know, a lot of forward looking work in cities like Albuquerque that have been doing this for a while, for example, you know, we're going beyond basic metering into the use of advanced analytics and leak detection and so forth. In Europe, of course, it does vary considerably by country and states. So in Southern Europe, Obviously, we have a greater focus on you know, water shortages, and we've seen this you know, in Spain. You know, Barcelona is one of the first things to introduce smart water management for public water, you know, in the gardens and the city use and so forth. But it's not just that simple because you know, we're seeing northern European countries also facing some of these issues now. So, for example, in the southeast of England, heavily populated, expanding population, you know, we've had drought conditions in several years and had one actually in 2022. And that has driven water meter deployments in the UK, smart meter pumps increasingly now in response. And then also, of course, in Europe, we're seeing more flood events as well. So there is definitely an interest in those technologies we talked about, flood monitoring and management. The other thing in Europe is there's considerable variation in terms of who are the main actors and who has agency. So in a country like the UK, cities, for example, have very little control over the water infrastructure. These are national providers, and it's largely under the regulation of the national government. Whereas, say, in a country like Germany, there's many more local utilities providing that water infrastructure, and municipalities often have a greater say in those developments. So it's a bit of a more of a, a mixed picture in Europe. But Still, water is definitely being seen as part of the general push to development of sustainable city approaches, which is getting a lot of impetus across most European countries. Thank you. And it's quite a broad stroke question to answer. It must be quite varied. And I think that draws quite a good picture of the state of things. Grant, do you have anything to add? Hmm. Well, I thought of two. One is more technical and the other is probably more interesting to a broader audience. The, the technical one has to do with networking solutions and different types of ways of networking meters, whether you use a you know cellular or a public IoT or a proprietary. That definitely differs region to region. But something else I think is really interesting is privacy concerns and the ideas that people have, sometimes, you know, that individual residents have, sometimes not always uh, accurate about what will be achieved by installing a smart meter and what sorts of data certain people will and won't get. And there's been really interesting, um, well, I, I say interesting, it's actually not, it's scary. But there's been cases of meter installers that have actually been assaulted by homeowners because they think that they're trying to install government spy tech or you know whatever it is onto their home. And 
I think that's an interesting regional difference is people's willingness to allow this kind of advanced technology to quote unquote monitor their usage. And it's something that comes up a lot in North America. And I feel like it comes up less so in Europe. And if I had to guess, I would guess it's owing to, you know, cultural differences between individualism versus collectivism. But I think that that, if I can extrapolate it, sort of that broader debate around privacy and around this duality of when you have more data, you can do really cool things with it. But then, of course, you have more data on more people that is potentially sensitive, potentially identifying information. And, you know, in the case of water, less so, but you know, Europe has gone to really, really great policy lengths with like GDPR to make sure that privacy is protected through the collection of various kinds of data that you find throughout the smart city. In the United States, that's not so much. In other parts of the world, it sort of differs depending on where you are and as cultural norms differ. But talking again about how social and economic and environmental factors all sort of intermingle and intersect, I think that that's an interesting one where cultural norms sometimes clash with this desire to collect more data to be able to make better informed decisions. And oftentimes, the tech that we need to make those decisions is already in place and already developed. The issue is more of a human issue, making sure that people understand what's going on, that people are okay with, or at least you know permissive of, and that the people that are running projects understand the responsibility that they have and the opportunities that they have. And you mentioned briefly there just about implementation and whether it is being installed and whether there's enough being done in order to get it installed. And that actually kind of brings me into my next question. Eric, you alluded to earlier the IRA laws in the States. Regarding implementation, do the two of you think enough is actually catered for by policy and regulation? And if not, what more is needed within this industry? Eric, if you could go ahead. Yeah, um, I think policy and regulation is actually, you know, a fundamental importance in such a direction for this. And we won't see, I think, you know, massive acceleration without those sort of um, mandates that come from government and from regulators. That's both relevant in terms of cost, because obviously, for example, in the US or whatever, you know, you have to have the agreement about raising the money for infrastructure investment for the water utilities. And in Europe, it'll you know, central government will decide the level of funding that may go forward or be invested in the infrastructure. And also, I think, you know, one of the things that we didn't see in water that we saw in electricity, for example, in Europe is a mandate around water metering. Now, a lot of European countries already had some form of water metering, but we've now seen, you know, parts of the UK, for example, having mandated metering. And that really obviously puts a huge force behind adoption. And I think we'll see more of that anyway because of the critical issues to face. I mean, fundamentally, there's a tension between our recognition the water systems are an essential utility, which everyone should have access to, and you know we need to provide it, you know, um, irrespective in some ways of cost because it has to be there. I mean, obviously, it also has to be economically viable, but also we know we have to make the necessary investments and raise the monies needed to improve and to make that infrastructure ready for the future. And that really is an area of policy and regulation. We're seeing an issue, for example, at the moment in the UK around the dumping of sewage into our rivers. And that is now a very high profile political debate in the country about 
you know, who's responsible for this, whether the government should be taking a stronger view, whether the investment is being made, you know, who should ensure that investment's made, how do we monitor the existing regulations have been met, how do we impose new regulations that ensure, you know, a cleaner uh, also through our, through our rivers. So, you know, this and some of the other more critical issues that we've been talking around water, you know, who has access to water, you know, where there's like a water basin between cities has been an issue in a number of countries. It was in Brazil, for example. So I think we're going to see much more focus on politics, on policy and on regulation in relation to water going forward. Thank you so much. That provides incredible insight into just the way things are going, how it's going to develop, and just in terms of what is needed for further implementation. Grant, is there anything else you'd like to add on that note? I would say that there is a home for, for policy. I think, you know, Eric mentioned mandates around actual metering of connections, not just estimating connections that's happening in parts of Europe. And it's also happening in parts of the United States. California, believe it or not, had some cities or some areas that still had estimated water connections and the state passed a law mandating metering on all connections that some municipalities are now scrambling to make sure that they come into compliance. And so that's a good example of a top-down policy that's driving action forward that can help in the conservation of water resources and help in the assurance of future resources, especially as it comes to arid areas like the U.S. West and like California. There's also been a lot of conversation recently around policies for irrigation of, of crops within the Central Valley in California. That's been a really, really big topic of conversation. There's been a lot of interesting policy approaches that have been met with a whole flurry of legislative and uh, legal action around what sorts of water conservation plans should be allowed, shouldn't be allowed, how much do historic water rights that might be have been considered senior for watering alfalfa, for instance, which is, you know, should that still be considered in this new paradigm we're going into of a climate change future, or do we need to rethink how we've historically granted people access to water resources? Excellent. Thank you so much. And unfortunately, we have about run out of time, but I think that that's a very good way to end. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, both of you. It's been very interesting to hear both of your opinions. And I think you're both in such an interesting position to really talk about this issue. And to me, it seems quite promising just the way things are going. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add before we round off? I think I'd just say, you know, we've been looking at the water space for about 10 years. And coming to it at this moment, we're still raising many of the same questions about how do we accelerate the implementation of these technologies. But also we're seeing that I think now the focus in cities and in governments and in water utilities on the effects of climate change is so much stronger and our maturity and our understanding of what we can do with these technologies is so much greater that I think we are reaching a sweet spot in terms of how we can make greater moves in terms of modernizing our water systems and in fact it's an imperative given the challenges we face. Excellent, thank you so much Eric. Grant, anything else? Yeah, in conclusion I would just say that the future right now is really exciting because of all of the funding that has been put forward in the US, in Europe, in other parts of the regions as recovery bills from COVID. I know we've been talking a lot about the United States with the Infrastructure Act, which was a huge bundle of money. Then you had the IRA that came after it. 
there are a lot of resources that are set to be invested that will eventually trickle down to the municipal level and will be implemented into these sorts of water technologies. And I think we are gaining an awareness socially of the importance of these technologies. And now we're gaining a whole pool of resources to implement them. I think the next five years is going to be very exciting in terms of how we develop technologies and how we develop new strategies for guarding our water resources as we move collectively into this climate future of ours. And on that positive and exciting note, we will end there. Thank you both so much for coming, Grant and Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.